This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Many sports psychology scholars have observed that mindfulness has become a panacea for all sorts of issues, including stress management, emotional control, sporting performance, and whatnot. With all the documented benefits of mindfulness, what is there not to like? Well, there are some scholars who have reservations on how the discipline of sports psychology has taken up mindfulness and used it for its own purposes. I'm delighted to be talking to two of these researchers today. One of them is Dr. Maria Ginto, or Marissa as she is known, an associate professor at University of the Philippines Diliman, with whom we started to converse around these issues in a sports psychology conference a couple of years ago. Marissa then introduced me to Dr. Dev Roychodri, a researcher and practitioner based in Melbourne, Australia, who also approaches mindfulness practices from a critical perspective. So the three of us started discussing these issues and we felt that we shared many similar concerns and therefore decided to write a critical piece on what has happened to mindfulness in the transnational arena of sport and exercise psychology. This article was published a few months ago with Dev as the lead author. And in today's episode, we will explore some of the arguments and share some of the stories behind this research. Welcome to the podcast, Dev and Marissa. It's really a pleasure for me to talk to you today. Thanks, Nora. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, same here. It's really delightful for us to be together, to be speaking about you know our research that the three of us did. So thank you, Nora. I mean, any of our discussions, I think we had a lot of fun as well, like meeting up and discussing our perspectives and these critiques and concerns. I think any of those research meetings could have been a podcast session as well. But so here we are and the paper has been completed and it was quite a lot of work. I think we got some constructive feedback in the review that helped us to refine and push further with our arguments. But before jumping ahead of ourselves, let's just start talking a little bit about this background. I mentioned that um, you both had your own concerns on mindfulness and when we got together it was more like a result of a long thought process that each one of us had before uh, this encounter. So who wants to start? Maybe Marissa, because you're the one who brought the three of us together. Okay, so I guess my background comes from my own uh, experience um, in sport uh, psychology and using mindfulness. But a few years back, even before we met in the conference, I attended this uh, 
workshop seminar um, conducted by foreigners um, among psychologists in our country. And while it felt very familiar, it also looked very foreign in a sense that all these terms and all these um, practices were being introduced to us as if it was something that was different from what we intuitively were practicing for many years. And so that was already um, part of my awareness then, that there was something happening in mindfulness that I couldn't really understand. Um, and so a few more readings and a few more discussions with colleagues in our country um, really uh, confirmed that we felt very uncomfortable with what was happening. And so when we met uh, um, in a conference, uh, actually in 2019, I sat and listened to all the workshops and um, um, presentations on mindfulness precisely to understand how the West has uh, really appropriated something that we've, we were familiar with in Asia, but in a different way. So from the first workshop to all the talks, I would be very, very um, vocal in asking questions about it and how um, you know, the Western has appropriated this uh, practice. And so I think I had conversations with you separately, Dev and Noor, about this. And by the end of the conference, I really felt very strongly about writing this because um, I, I felt that there was something happening that was far away from where it originated. So that was my, my main um, sentiment at that time. And so when we got together, this whole thing really unfolded. And I, and I felt this was really what we all wanted uh, to do in the first place. And it was nice to see it published. Yeah, absolutely. And Deb, you were also in the conference. We're talking of FEPSA conference in, in the summer 2019, but we only started working together afterwards. Maybe also share a, a bit, Deb, about your own background and, and how you approach uh, this question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, when we attended the conference in, in FEPSAC, like uh, Marisa just mentioned, um, she pretty much echoed what I felt at the time, what, what um, you know, when I attended a few sessions on mindfulness conducted by non-Asian uh, presenters um, who were very professional in their presentation, but I still felt that there was something missing and it was that foreign element. Um, I've grown up in a predominantly Hindu um, household background environment, um, being born and bred in India. From a very early age in our culture, uh, meditative practices were, were uh, very much part and parcel of, of the culture. And so I didn't know it as the modern contemporary mindfulness as we know it now, but practices such as mindfulness, meditation, yoga were very much part of our um, daily routine, ritual, culture, um, whatever you want to call it. So that was the personal background I've had, you know, my relationship with mindfulness. Professionally, my introduction to mindfulness uh, was when Professor Mark Anderson uh, introduced uh, certain chapters to us during our grad graduate training. And that's when I realized that there was something off. There was something that wasn't adding up. And uh, now well, it's very clear to us that, you know, this magical pill or panacea that mindfulness has been uh, construed to be, um, it, it, it's missing some fundamental, you know, psychological, spiritual, metaphysical foundation. So I guess that's where my concerns originated from. And when Marisa got in touch and, and discussed this uh, a bit more formally, 
and the three of us sat down, I think um, that's where uh, the paper's inception took place. And uh, yeah, I'm just glad that we were able to collaborate on this topic and um, get it published in a good journal. Yeah, and so our work was published as a part of a special issue on transnationalism in Psychology of Sport and Exercise. So the special issue was edited by Tatiana Riban, Natalia Stambulova. And so we found it quite useful to take this transnational lens and look at how mindfulness has been appropriated in sport and exercise psychology as a process of cultural transition. So briefly to say that often cultural transitions has become a bigger topic in sports psychology and, and more and more work has been done on athletes, cultural transition, for example, but we found it also quite useful to look at cultural transition in terms of ideas and practices and mindfulness being one of these. And in the article, we write a little bit about yoga as well and and how when yoga has been taken up as a physical culture, it has also uh, gone through a process of transformation and adaptation uh, to the Western audiences. And so we use this transnational lens and the ideas about cultural transition and negotiation of practices when when these transnational flows take place. But so, Dev, you are the one who covered really the roots of mindfulness in our paper. So maybe you already started talking about a little bit about that, but maybe just continue a little bit and uh, develop it a bit further. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll try my best. It's nearly impossible to encapsulate mindfulness in a short or brief amount of time. And also because I don't really specialize in say, theology or religious studies. So I'm, I'm hoping that I'm able to do justice with this to the best of my abilities um, without you know, misconstruing anything or offending anyone. Um, yeah. Nonetheless, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. So let me first lay the foundation here. Um, I feel there's been a lot of misconceptions that surround um, mindfulness or mindfulness-related concepts. So let me just first burst the myth that mindfulness originated in Buddhism. Um, a fact or a, a, a sentence I see quite often in, in papers. I'm of the firm belief that it did not. Um, and looking at some of the historical background, it's clear why or how. Now, before I get into that, let me quickly address the, the mothership from where all these practices and traditions originate, um, which is the philosophy of Hinduism. Now, there's no single system of belief that can be used to represent Hinduism. Um, Hinduism consists of diverse schools of thoughts and beliefs and philosophies that feature varied concepts and rituals. Um, they often talk about how one should righteously live, conduct themselves in their lives, um, to all sorts of metaphysical inquiries. Now, although some of these schools of thoughts um, may seem to conflict from time to time, they broadly seem to agree on certain core Hindu philosophical tenets. Um, this would, for instance, include dharma, which is ethical and moral conduct and responsibility, artha, which is meaningful work, karma, which is desire and passion, and moksha, which is liberation which can all be realized through karma, which is action. Now, to achieve this, Hinduism recommends the practice of ritual, ceremonies, meditation, patience, compassion, restraint, etc., etc. Now, the meditative element in this often involves um, a, a mindful component. So mindfulness in this context, uh, enshrined in the Eastern contemplative tradition of Hinduism, 
literally means to remember or to bear in mind. And of course, they're talking about the the scriptural elements. So to remember that that has been passed on from one generation to to another. Now these traditions have been well documented in the Indian scriptures of Vedas and Upanishads, um, the origins of which, according to some scholars, date back about five thousand years ago. It's also evident from archival records that these methods of disciplined, introspective, and meditative practices were common custom for the different schools of Indian philosophy that were taught in the form of recitations and orally transferred in an unbroken line of transmission. Now, when it comes to Buddhism, and I guess this is where the transition happened, it is now understood that Prince Siddhartha, influenced by Vedic teachings at the time of, let's say, meditation and introspection and contemplation, integrated elements of these meditative practices into his noble truths. So for, for instance, some of the first recorded instructions on mindful practices in Buddhism appear in the Satipatthana Sutta around 20 uh, BCE. So the chronology here is very clear, but the scholarly um, work that we have seen in contemporary mindfulness research and practice lately largely ignores this sort of chronology, timing, understanding, and attribution. So in the West, uh, mindfulness has been stripped of its you know, metaphysical, spiritual, philosophical foundation and has simply been characterized as a capacity to pay attention to a given purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. Why has this been the case? Um, I'm sure you know, Marisa will briefly touch on this um, a bit later. Why has this been commodified and what are the benefits, pros and cons? But Broadly speaking, this is the sort of brief background of where mindfulness comes from. So it's not something that, you know, um, Buddha woke up one day and, and conceptualized off. Uh, it was a very gradual process um, of evolution, uh, if you will. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, so basically in, in writings in more popular Western context, but also like in the research papers, the tracing back kind of continues to buddhism but not not beyond that but you're saying that actually the history is much longer than than what is typically in and when you when you start reading it especially from like a more popular sources absolutely and and i've been guilty of that too because when i first started reading up on on the topic on contemporary modern western adaptation of mindfulness i also thought it originated from buddhism um because again i did not have any traditional theological background. Um, but then the more I read up, um, I realized that there's a very clear divide or distinction and, and a lot of the history has been omitted or um, is not usually or regularly acknowledged. So for, for instance, some of these meditative practices, um, rightful action, rightful you know, mindfulness, date back to the Rig Veda, which is about 3000 to 2500 BCE. So there's a large difference between, say, 2500 BCE and 20 BCE of uh, when Satipatthana Sutta was written. But this has largely been put aside, which I sort of can understand because Buddhism, from a Western perspective, gives you a very systematic um, way of approaching life, um, whether it's the noble truths or the, um, the different paths. And so I guess the adaptation from a, a Western scholarly point of view, would have been much easier to, to adapt and extol these practices from, let's say, Buddhism than Hinduism, which is a much more diverse and much, much more esoteric in, in, in a way. 
but that's my take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you that having grown up in that Hinduist context and, you know, we see that in Western countries, Buddhism has been something that has been quite attractive for quite many years and and many people are searching for some ideas from Zen Buddhism, for example, in terms of how to live. But Hinduism doesn't seem to have the same popularity, if we put it that way. So what are your, you already started talking about that, so maybe some more thoughts why that might be the case. Um, I think, you know, people tend to say, and this might be a bit controversial statement to make, that, you know, yoga is one of the sexiest imports or um, exports from, from, from India. Um, but I also think it's Buddhism because the way Buddhism has been marketed and spread, generally speaking, has been, um, you know, it would be a good case study for anyone doing marketing or, or branding. Um, a, a lot of scholars have spent a lot of time um, studying Buddhism. And so Buddhism, whether it's uh, Suzuki or, or Herigal in the Eastern scholarly sort of tradition, um, or whether it's Orlake, some of the more contemporary, you know, practitioners in, in sports psychology, Buddhism, uh, for some reason, has found the popularity that some of the other um, philosophies, whether it's Jainism, whether it's Sikhism, um, uh, and of course, Hinduism, haven't. Um, and again, I think it's, it's what lends itself to be packaged more easily. And I think Buddhism is, is the answer. Um, but again, mind you, like if you go to say Sri Lanka or if you go to certain countries, they follow a certain flavor of Buddhism. So even Buddhism there has found a similar adaptation, which is different from the Indian um, Buddhism. Similarly, if you go to Japan, it's very common to say Zen Buddhism, which is very different from, say, uh, Mahayana Theravada Buddhism that you, you see in, in Sri Lanka. Um, China, again, has their own version. Um, and they have also taken some concepts. They're very, um, like, the, there's a lot of similarity between some of the Chinese Confucius um, concepts um, and, say, Buddhist Hindu concepts. Um, so, yeah, the, the, a good historian would be able to chart the chronology and how these things came to be. But I think Buddhism, for sure, has found the popularity that some of the other um, isms haven't. Yeah, I think you already hinted towards like uh, it's also a question of which of these belief systems make sense in a Western framework. And then Buddhism being perhaps there's been in terms of how that has been appropriated for for the Western audience, something that kind of fits in some ways already with and that can be more maybe easily fitted to the Western person and the western worldview and yes. i think this nicely this nicely brings us to the next question we are obviously far from the first people who are talking about what happened to mindfulness when it came to the western audiences so we raised these questions in a sport context but many scholars wrote about mindfulness and how it made it to the pop culture as this kind of self-help tool mm. that can help you with with your life and make you more happy and relaxed and so on. So Marissa, you focused on that part in our work and you, you drew on this uh, Wilson's analysis of the mechanisms of adaptation that happened when mindfulness came to the West. So maybe you can talk us through that. Yeah, actually, um, Wilson's um, uh, 
book on that is a very honest um, admission of uh, what happened. And actually, it reflected a lot in terms of what observations we had that started in the FEPSAC, where he um, talked about the different processes that were involved in the transformation actually um, the mutual transformation of the Buddhist meditation and the American culture. Because as this uh, mindfulness was really moving from east to west, it didn't move in its original form. And so in the process, as, as we are now experiencing it, we have a different experience of what uh, uh, Dev was originally describing you know, in a that in itself was changing, and so was the culture of the West, particularly in the U.S., where it became really a big business. So he talks about um, the different phases of how this came to be. And, uh, of course, in the beginning, it was difficult to speak about the original um, mindfulness, which came from the Pali term sati. So it became mindfulness because it had to be, um, um, how do you call it, transformed into a channel, um, whether this is the um, conversation about it, you know, the language, you know, to, to transform the original term to an English term that could be um, more acceptable as it entered, um, you know, the Western sphere. And uh, the word mindfulness became the byword at the time because it spoke about a lay type of meditation that was easier to accept. So eventually, mindfulness became a popular subject matter for a lot of authors and practitioners who were non-Buddhist at all. And so from here, um, the after the entry point, is really how to appropriate it. And he talks about mystifying um, mindfulness, where the Buddhist nature of mindfulness was downplayed and asserting that mindfulness is accidentally related to Buddhism and that all religions contain mindfulness. So here, uh, as Dev was uh, really describing so vividly earlier, that the origins have really been blurred um, and the framework, the original philosophical and metaphysical cosmological framework within which um, mindfulness was originally practiced is now minimized or reinterpreted as non-threatening metaphoric manner. So, in fact, uh, you know, by, by saying that all religions, all cultures, you know, can have, can, can have traces of mindfulness, it's like really taking it out from its origins so that new teachers, new lay, lay experts can claim um, to be um, legitimate teachers, okay? No longer, you know, you don't have to be a spiritual uh, teacher to be able to train other people. And so from, from mediating to mystifying, he talks about medicalizing mindfulness. And I think this is where uh, mindfulness was suited to fit the scientific and therapeutic culture that legitimizes a lot of these practices. Because now mindfulness is reframed as a psychological technique that uh, provides uh, you know, uh, mental benefits that can be scientifically and uh, physically verified. And so when John Kabat-Zinn um, created the mindfulness-based stress reduction, 
Okay, it was completely repackaged as a psychological uh, process or technique um, or a strategy that will deliver uh, benefits um, of meditation to the widest possible client or audience. And I, I think this was what really emerged during that conference that was really very disturbing because it really felt like a new product was uh, built around this a mindfulness practice and scientists, doctors, psychologists, sports psychologists were really um, quick to uh, latch on this therapeutic value of uh, mindfulness that can be measured. And I think that was one of the things that really bothered me when people started talking about dosage, frequency, etc. It really sounded so foreign already. And so it definitely this made it easy to mainstream um, mindfulness and uh, to, f- to be completely adapted to um, the needs, particularly of the middle class. So now it is an application to everyday experiences, to enhance uh, personal control um, over a lot of things. So now we have mindful eating, mindful parenting, mindful teaching, um, you know, even mindful sex, okay? And in the, in the, 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 in the, um, in the context of uh, sport and exercise, we even have this best-selling book, The Mindful Athlete secrets to pure performance um, that has been uh, uh, well talked about um, in the NBA basketball. So that really became, um, you know, a very popular practice for all. Doesn't You don't need to be connected in any way uh, or the remotest possible way to Buddhism. And so this uh, opened the floodgates to marketing mindfulness um, in, as a commercial uh, commodity. And it is now uh, sold as a lifestyle. And a lot of other people, uh, teachers, are claiming to be experts on this. And, um, you know, even the idea of marketing this um, in the legal profession in the military became acceptable. And now we even have other accessories, clothing, foods um, that are that are labeled as mindfulness and uh, we know very well and i think we mentioned that in our article that this is a multi-billion industry now and uh, lastly he talks about moralizing mindfulness um, and uh, creating its own worldviews and values which are uh, you know as we pointed out um, can be anchored on liberal politics and um, the whole effort of de-religionizing mindfulness um, and um, touting a new set of worldviews of the here and now, personal happiness, personal accountability, which could, of course, uh, be dangerous in a sense that now everything depends on the personal effort. And, um, you know, even a mindful uh, mindfulness at the workplace now puts the responsibility on the person to be mindful enough to um, manage all kinds of adversity, even if this adversity can be traced to um, imbalances or inequalities in the workplace or even in the national level. So um, when he spoke about this, he basically encapsulated the whole uh, journey of mindfulness and how it has found its, its comfortable 
and a profitable place in the West, particularly in America. And I, I, I suppose the, the picture is not so far even in other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd been in a seminar where we talked about life skills and, and the work I've done on existential learning. And a big question is that relates also to mindfulness is that where do we diagnose the problems? Is it the problem that athletes should be more mindful and more resilient? Or is there something fundamentally wrong about our sporting institutions if so many athletes are feeling stressed out and anxious and so on? So I think that's obviously one of the key questions that comes to play. Exactly. I think we raised that in our in our, our research that if mindfulness um, is supposed to help people um, manage anxiety, depression, and you know, um, really allow them to manage um, their reactions, then it now puts all the blame on the person, on the athlete, because if they're not mindful enough, they prob- that's the, probably the reason why they continue to suffer. And like what you said, this brings the attention away from the whole um you know environmental diagnosis of the problem it now puts everything on the person yeah i think this is our discussion so far has so well captured both the history covered by dev and and some of those concepts and some of the theory of what has happened so i think we are good to finish up for our first part of the discussion and in the second part we'll have a little bit more practical view into what is happening in sport and so what. So thank you so much for the conversation so far. Thanks a lot for that, uh, Nura and Marisa. It was a great uh, first part of our discussion uh, and I'm looking forward to the second part. Yes, same here. Um, I really enjoyed uh, listening to the two of you also. And although we, we wrote this uh, research together, it really feels different when we are in a conversation about it and you know, uh, recalling all the the work we've done, and I'm happy to really um, share it with our audience today. Thank you. Thank you, Nura, for initiating this. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.